You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 3 of the class on Nature and Grace. And the title of this lesson is The States of Human Nature. In the past lessons, what I've tried to establish for you is that man has a natural ordering to God. Not in the sense that man can arrive at God, at his vision, or at unity with him by his own natural power, but in the sense that there is a natural capacity in man, a natural receptive capacity, which is only filled when God is seen in the face. And that this receptive capacity is found in the intellect, so that the intellect has a natural tendency, or a traditional terminology for this is, a natural desire to know the cause of all the effects known by it, that this desire can only be stilled in the vision of God. So, it is imperative that human beings have the ability to arrive at God's vision, and this they can only do by grace. It is therefore in relation to the ordering which grace brings forth in our natures that human nature is considered to be rightly ordered. It's not possible to have a humanism that's true and authentic and perfect that does not take into account grace. And so, for that reason, the church and theology have been accustomed to examine man's ordering to grace under the rubric of the states of human nature. Now, one of the problems I brought up to you in the first lecture from Cardinal Cajetan was the idea that there was a hypothetical state in which man could have been neutral with respect to the vision of God and the ordering of grace. And Cardinal Cajetan called that state pure nature. What I'm going to try to show you in this lecture is that such a state is impossible, and that the state of pure nature has got to be, if by that you mean perfected nature, has got to be the state in which Adam was created. And if by that you mean man considered without grace and the possibility of having grace, then what you mean is fallen nature. Now, examining the teaching of the church, we are taught in the Council of Trent that the first man was created right. I think Ecclesiastes says that. Man was created right. Well, what does that mean? It means that man was created with the gift of grace. That's to say, with the ability to arrive at his ultimate end, which was God, and he was created with that ability without sin yet having entered the picture. 
The way the Catechism puts this, and I'm going to be using this as the primary source, so maybe you could have it out during the lecture, in number 374, which in my Catechism is on page 95, the first man was not only created good. Everything that's created in the world is created good. Remember, evil is a lack of being. So therefore, everything created in the world is created good, but was also established in friendship with his Creator, in harmony with himself, with the creation around him, in a state that will be surpassed only by the glory of the new creation in Christ. The Church, interpreting the symbolism of biblical language in an authentic way, in the light of the New Testament and tradition, teaches that our first parents, Adam and Eve, were constituted in an original state of holiness and justice. That's a quotation from the Council of Trent. This grace of original holiness was to share in divine life. In other words, man was elevated to enter into communion with God. There was a plus equality added to just his natural powers. We call that plus or quality grace, which enabled him to experience union with God on earth through love and faith, and a direction, a possibility, of finally attaining to the vision of God in heaven. So, Adam and Eve were created right. They had the gift of sanctifying grace. They also had the intellect, the will, the emotions and the body, just like we do. Also, so that they might exercise the gift of grace truly and correctly, so that they might live fully in the direction which divine providence was to give to their lives, God gave them a third set of gifts. The Council of Trent calls this third set of gifts preternatural gifts, from the two Latin words for nature, natural, and beyond, which is praeter. They're not above nature exactly, that's supernatural gifts. What is the supernatural gift? Sanctifying grace. It's God's own divine life of the Trinity. They're not natural gifts, that's the intellect, the will, the emotions, and the body. They're in a third place called preternatural. In number 376, the Catechism says, By the radiance of this grace, all dimensions of man's life were confirmed. As long as he remained in divine intimacy, man would not have to suffer or die. The inner harmony of the human person, the harmony between man and woman, and finally the harmony between the first couple and all creation comprised a state called original justice. Now, what do we mean by original justice here? Do we mean the justice which is defined as the constant and perpetual will to render the good to another? No. This justice is a justice that's oddly enough also spoken of by Aristotle. He says that there is a kind of justice in human life called metaphorical justice. This justice is the right ordering of the inner self. So, what the Catechism is trying to say is that the inner self can't be rightly ordered without grace. There's no such thing as a peaceful humanism. Now, how do we know Adam had these gifts? Well, first of all, God, if you recall in Genesis, 
brings the animals to be named by him. And he immediately gives them a name. Now, in Hebrew thought, this is a very significant action. To name something means to know its nature. You may recall that the reason God does not have a name, the name I am who am, isn't the proper name for God. It expresses his nature somewhat, but it's more unknown than known to us. To name something is to fully understand its nature, and this means that Adam immediately, in his first experience of the animals, understood their nature. He could not do this if the only kind of knowledge he had was the sort of knowledge we have, which is by experiment and abstraction. After all, it takes scientists a long, long time to understand even the general nature of a thing. There's a famous quotation in St. Thomas's commentary on the Creed where he says that so elusive is human knowledge that there was once a philosopher who put himself in seclusion for 33 years to try to discover the nature of a bee, and he didn't discover it. And in another place he says that if we could understand all that was entailed in the existence of a single fly, we would understand the secrets of the universe because we could understand what God's mind was in his providence completely concerning this. Well, Adam understood this, and this means that he had to have a knowledge that's far beyond ours. He had to have the sort of knowledge in his original creation which the angels had. And so, the Council of Trent assigns one of the preternatural gifts to be infused knowledge. Not only that, but Adam and Eve also had a loving obedience. Now, I say obedience because they perfectly did what God commanded them. When God says, of all the fruit of the trees you may eat, but you may not eat of the fruit of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. He allows them to become partners in the realization of their own destiny, and he invites them to obedience. And this obedience is an easy obedience for them because they experience communion with God, because they experience grace. Love and obedience go together, because what else is obedience but one human will through knowledge moving another human will, and what else is love but the union of human wills around the truth? So, when you love someone, obedience naturally goes along with that. Now, this is not a modern idea that's popular. I remember once I was giving a sermon at the seminary about how love and obedience go together. This was a number of years ago on the Feast of the Annunciation because, you see, Mary reverses the trend of the sin by showing obedience and love. And there was a deacon sitting in the back row. He hated the idea. He wanted love, but he didn't want to have to obey. Well, Adam and Eve had an easy obedience because they were well constituted spiritually by God. Not only that, but they had perfect spontaneity in their emotions. They did not suffer from emotional weakness or emotional desire that is disordered or its possibility. Now, how do I know that? Well, in the book of Genesis, you remember that after Adam had the animals brought to him to be named, he finds not one that is like him. He names no animal which is like him. So he is alone in the universe. 
And God says it is not good for man to be alone. Now, why isn't it good for man to be alone? Because man is created in the image and likeness of God. God is a trinity of persons. God enjoys interpersonal communion. If it's not possible for man to enjoy interpersonal communion with one like himself, then it's not possible for him to realize fully being made in the image and likeness of God. So, God takes from Adam his rib. He experiences what the present Pope John Paul II calls a second creation. He casts him into a deep primordial sleep, and he takes from him his rib, not his head, because if it was his head, woman would be his superior, and if it was his foot, woman would be his inferior. He takes from him his rib as a symbol of woman's equality with him, and from it he fashions Eve. And Adam, who's had infused knowledge of the things in the world and not been able to name one like himself, as soon as he sees Eve, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, he recognizes someone who is like himself with whom he can have interpersonal communion. The woman receives this recognition. She says nothing. She's not the initiator of the relationship, but she's an essential participant and not a participant from weakness or from inferiority. She's an equal participant, but she receives and then returns it. She allows herself to be known in this way by man, and then she returns the recognition. In this, Adam and Eve experience interpersonal communion, which is the basis of marriage. They express this interpersonal communion, as all human beings do, through physical media because we're not angels, we're creatures with bodies. They express us in their body. And the scriptures state then, Adam and Eve were naked, but not ashamed. After the sin, they become naked and ashamed. Now, what has changed about their bodies that should make them ashamed that their bodies? Should we be ashamed that our bodies, the way they look and things like that? No, bodies are beautiful. I mean, Michelangelo paints beautiful bodies on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. What has changed is the relationship of the soul to the body and to God. Before the sin, because man was constituted in grace and in purity of heart, a man and a woman who experienced communion of hearts first, then expressed that communion of hearts in union of body through sexuality. Because their hearts were pure, because their hearts were ordered, because they had a loving obedience and an infused knowledge, and a spontaneity in their emotions. They enjoyed being virtuous. They enjoyed great feelings of emotion, but these emotions did not war against their gift of themselves toward others. After the sin, when they lose this, it becomes very easy for them to use another, to manipulate another, merely for the sake of the pleasure of the experience, because their emotions become disordered. As a result, human beings cover their bodies with clothing, not because their bodies are evil, but because of what Jesus calls later in the Gospels, the lust of the heart. Remember the text, I tell you that a man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. What does this mean, lust of the heart? It means that you look on another as someone you want to manipulate and use for your own selfish enjoyment. Before the sin, this was not possible. 
because Adam and Eve were constituted in original righteousness. They really loved and enjoyed each other and virtue. They had perfect spontaneity in their emotions. I remember once I was giving a lecture on virtues to some Carmelite sisters, and one of them raised her hand at the end of the lecture and she said, now let me get this straight, Father. We're supposed to enjoy being virtuous? And I said, well, sure, in a rightly ordered character. The trouble is we still suffer from the weakness of the original sin. But Adam and Eve did not. And there's a wonderful question in St. Thomas against all Christian ultra-puritanical views on this subject, the rigorous views on this subject, where St. Thomas asks if Adam and Eve experienced more pleasure in the conjugal act before the sin than we do now after the sin. And he says, yes because they were rightly ordered and rightly constituted. But their pleasure was not a sinful pleasure, because since they lived in communion with God, it wasn't possible to distract them to look at things merely from a self-centered point of view. This is expressed by the Catechism in this way in number 377. The mastery over the world that God offered man from the beginning was realized above all within man himself, mastery of self. But what causes mastery of self? Could we do this by our own strength, by our own power? No. It is grace that causes mastery of self. It is our reliance on God's aid that causes mastery of self, not our own power, because it's grace that causes this state. The first man, the Catechism continued, was unimpaired, and ordered in his whole being because he was free from the triple concupiscence. Now, what's the triple concupiscence? Well, the triple concupiscence is found in the first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 16. The triple concupiscence is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes is traditionally interpreted to be avarice, greed, over material possessions and the power that they can bring. The lust of the eyes is traditionally interpreted to be sexual enjoyment. And the pride of life refers to a disordered self-assertion. You may be aware that it's to remedy for this triple concupiscence that the three famous penances that are mentioned by our Lord and invoked during Lent are practiced by Christians. What are the three famous penances? Fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. When you fast, don't look glum like the hypocrites do. Remember Matthew? When you give alms, don't blow the trumpet before you like the hypocrites do. And when you pray, don't stand in the street corners to be seen by men. Go to your Father in secret and pray in secret. While well, fasting is the remedy for lust, almsgiving is the remedy for greed, and prayer is the remedy for the pride of life. Adam and Eve did not experience this because they were constituted perfectly in grace. Not yet, please, in vision. They had not yet arrived at heaven. They were not confirmed in grace. So they had to persevere in grace throughout their lives. And they had to pray for God, even though they were so wonderfully constituted, to aid and support them in this perseverance. And finally, when God says to them, on the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die, the Pope says 
they hear this without understanding it because they have no direct experience of death. This is because they also have a harmony with all the material creation because they're in harmony with its creator. 378 in the Catechism says, the sign of man's familiarity with God is that God places him in the garden. There he lives to till and keep it. Work is not yet a burden. Man works, but he doesn't work with toil or the sweat of his brow, but rather the collaboration of man and woman in perfecting the visible creation. Now this is what man ought to be. Man ought to be in communion with God, a communion which blesses him with this infused knowledge in his intelligence, with a loving obedience, a ready obedience in his will spawned by grace, a spontaneity in which the emotions don't war against loving obedience but support him, and we ought not to die. There's a wonderful question also in St. Thomas where he asks if death is natural to man. And he said, well, if you look at human beings from the point of view of the body, death is natural to man because all bodies corrupt. But if you look at human beings from the point of view of the substantial union between the body and the soul, and remember, Christians don't think the body is an alien force in man. Man is not just a soul, man is both. If the soul lives forever, and the body and the soul are in a substantial unity, then it seems unnatural for the body to die forever. The pagans knew this. Aristotle knew that the soul was immortal. He knew that the body and the soul were in a complete unity with each other. But it was also his experience that the body died. How to explain this? There was no explanation. This was a conundrum for the pagans. It was like a box canyon, a question they couldn't answer. When Jesus rises from the dead like a ring to a finger, this conundrum is solved because man is not made only for his existence in this world. He is made for his existence in this world, but this is a pilgrimage. It's a preparation for life in the next world. The Catechism says then, all this wonderful harmony, 379, of original justice foreseen for man in God's plan was lost by the sin of the first parents. So, from the state of original justice, we enter into the second state. Man fell down from the state in which he was created to a state below what he should be by nature. We call this state fallen nature, and it is exemplified, or it is the original sin. Now, the original sin is the forgotten doctrine. You know, I don't know how many people today deny the existence of the original sin. I remember when my little nephew was baptized, a deacon prepared my family for this baptism and I just went in and did it. And so when I was talking to my sister, I said, you know, I'm just curious, did this deacon happen to mention original sin? And she said, well, it's funny you should mention that because there was an Italian couple from New Jersey and they asked about original sin, and the deacon said, oh, babies don't have any sins. We're not baptizing the baby because of sin. We're baptizing him just to make him a member of the church. Now, of course, you might ask why he isn't a member of the church by birth, and of course, the reason is because he has original sin. Well, this Italian couple said, well, guy, we don't know why you're baptizing the baby, but we're baptizing to free him from original sin. The original sin is a doctrine for which there is evident 
experience in the senses. I mean, nobody's like they should be. Aristotle said that. After he went through this long, beautiful picture of human nature, he then says, but I don't know anybody who's like this. And yet, it's the doctrine that's most easily and readily denied today. The Catechism teaches that original sin is an essential truth of faith. What happened in this original sin? Well, in 390, the Catechism says this, the account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human race is marked by the original fault freely committed by the first parents. Well, what is the original sin? All right, remember that the harmonious state in which Adam and Eve were created was something that they had to persevere in. You know the famous statement of Jesus, many are called but few are chosen? Now he doesn't mean many in the sense of a huge number and few in the sense of a small number. He's using, again, a Semitic device, a device of the Hebrew language. He means many are called but less are chosen. In other words, less persevere than the ones that are called to grace. In order for Adam and Eve to persevere in such a wondrous state, which was divinely induced, it was necessary for them to rely on God's aid. Satan tempted them to make a choice without relying on God's aid. In other words, Adam had to pray to preserve himself in this state. Adam made a choice without interior prayer, without relying on interior communion with God. In this he did an unloving act, and therefore he lost the thing which made his state to begin with. He lost sanctifying grace. As soon as he lost grace, then he lost the preternatural gifts. He lost infused knowledge and instead experiences ignorance. He lost loving obedience and instead experiences a tendency to disobey and to be unloving which traditional theology calls malice. He lost spontaneity in his emotions so that he really enjoyed doing the good and instead he experiences the fact that he doesn't enjoy doing the good. It lies not in his emotions most of the time, especially in the beginning of his conversion. He experiences a weakness, being foolish of heart and slow to believe with respect to living the truth. And finally, he experiences suffering and death. How do I know, especially with regard to the last two? Because of the punishments that are spoken of in the original sin. You remember that God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This expresses both malice and concupiscence. What it means to say is this, that woman after the sin will seek to manipulate man through tricking him, and that man after the sin will seek to manipulate woman by power and domination. Woman will be reduced to the status almost of a slave after the original sin. Not that woman's supposed to be that way, that's not the way it is by nature, but it's because of the loss of grace. And man and woman experience the rebellion of nature against them. Whereas man was called to work 
Now he has to work in toil, in thorns and thistles, with the sweat of your brow, shall you earn your daily bread. And of course, woman's rebellion nature against her is seen in the fact that she now brings forth children in pain. Remember, before the sin, children were not born in pain. And then, the ultimate rebellion of matter against spirit is seen in the fact the world turned upside down, that man hears for the first time that you are dust, and to dust you shall return, that he will die. So, as a result of this movement in themselves, toward themselves, without reliance on God, which was an unloving movement, I mean, if you love someone, you know, you consult them before you do something major and important, especially something you've been forbidden to do by them, especially if they're infinite and the creator of the world and someone who's elevated you to themselves. They did not perform an action in divine intimacy. First, an interior movement that then gave it way to ignorance and malice and weakness and then was expressed in the exterior deed. 396 in the Catechism says this, God created man in his image and established him in his friendship. A spiritual creature, man can live this friendship only in free submission to God. The prohibition against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil spells this out. For in the day you shall eat of it, you shall die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolically evokes the insurmountable limits that man being a creature must freely recognize and respect with trust. Man is dependent on his creator. See, Adam and Eve tried to make an act without depending on God and subject to the laws of creation and the moral norms that govern the use of freedom. Man tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart and abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. Notice it's not a sin of lust like some people think. It's a sin of pride and disobedience. All subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and lack of trust in His goodness. In that sin, man preferred himself to God and by that very act scorned Him. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status and therefore against his own good. Created in a state of holiness, Man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory, that's to say in heaven. Seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. We're all supposed to be like God by grace. But this is what's wrong about it. He wanted to be like God, without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. Scripture portrays the tragic consequences of this first disobedience. Adam and Eve immediately lose the grace of original holiness. There we go. Grace is lost, the grace of original holiness. They become afraid of God, of whom they have conceived a distorted image, that of a God jealous of His prerogatives. Now, why do they think God is jealous of His prerogatives? Because they don't know Him intimately anymore, and that's what they're supposed to be able to do. How can we arrive at the vision of God? if we don't know God here on earth intimately, not just as the cause of effects, but as the known in the knower and the beloved in the lover. That's what the human soul is called to, to be the bride of the bridegroom. If we can't do that, then we're less than human. More than that, number 400 in the Catechism, 
the harmony in which they had found themselves thanks to original justice. See, we just talked about holiness being lost. Now this harmony due to original justice, which was all these preternatural gifts here, is now destroyed. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. In the original justice, the spirit filled with God through the infused knowledge, through loving obedience, controlled the emotions and filled them in a spiritual way and also exercised perfect control over the body. This is now shattered. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tensions, their relations henceforth marked by lust and domination. Harmony with creation is broken. Visible creation has become alien and hostile to man. Because of man, creation is now subject to its bondage and decay. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold of this disobedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. The world in this is virtually inundated by sin. Sin goes through everything that exists as far as man is concerned because manipulation and domination do. And this is finally seen in the ultimate, well, you know, the husband and the wife experience lust for each other. Then what happens to the kids? The kids pick up the sin. Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. And finally, sin goes throughout the human race until in the Tower of Babel, we have the very sign of our rationality now as a sign of our confusion among ourselves. You know, there's a famous idea that the Babel of languages is reversed in the language of Pentecost. Remember when Paul speaks one language, but it's experienced by all of them in different ways. So, in 403, following St. Paul, the church has always taught the overwhelming misery which oppresses men and their inclination toward death and evil cannot be understood apart from their connection with Adam's sin and the fact that he has transmitted to us a sin which we are all born afflicted, a sin which is the death of the soul. Because of this certainty of faith, the church baptizes for the remission of sins, even tiny infants who have not committed personal sin. Adam and Eve then were created in a state which they could have passed on to their descendants by material connection. All men are as one person in Adam. Had Adam not sinned, we would have all inherited this state with the preternatural gifts. But because of the sin of Adam, we all are born into the world without grace. The original sin does not primarily refer to the action, whatever it may be, of the personal sin of Adam and Eve. The action really is immaterial. The traditional terminology used for this is the efficient cause. Whatever the personal sin was, was an extrinsic cause that brought this sin to be. The actual essential character of this sin is to be without grace and then to be without the preternatural gifts. Original sin is not a personal sin as such. This is expressed in 404 in the Catechism. Original sin is a sin which will be transmitted by propagation to all mankind. That is, by the transmission of a human nature deprived of original holiness and justice. That is why original sin is called sin only in an analogical sense. It's not completely sin. 
because it's a sin contracted and not committed. It's a state and not an act. Now, there have been Christians who believed that man in the state of original sin was totally corrupt, was completely and totally depraved, that nothing he could do was good. Catholicism does not believe that. That's too pessimistic a view of human nature. Catholicism believes that man in the state of original sin is wounded, that he can do many natural goods. He can avoid many sins. The pagans do not sin in all their acts. What he cannot do, however, is return to heaven. He can't merit heaven. He may be able to help prepare himself to receive the grace by which he will merit heaven, but he can't go there. He can't arrive there because he's deprived of this. So human nature is not totally corrupted, but it's unable to arrive at its ultimate end. And the Catechism expresses this in 405. Although it is proper to each individual, original sin does not have the character of a personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. It is a deprivation of original holiness and justice. But human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded in the natural powers, subject to ignorance, suffering, the dominion of death, and inclined to sin, an inclination to evil that is called concupiscence. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin and turns a man back toward God. So in other words, in baptism, we receive back the supernatural gift of grace. We've always had the natural gifts of intellect, will, emotions, and body. Those have remained. Man isn't totally depraved. But we do not receive back the preternatural gifts of infused knowledge, loving obedience, spontaneity, and no suffering and death. So now we have a state of nature which is both sinful and redeemed, both fallen and redeemed. St. Augustine's expression is simul lapsus et redemptus. It's a state at the same time lapsed and redeemed. Luther took that to mean that Christ just covered over our acts and that all of our acts are really sins. No, what this means is that we have this weakness, but Christ's grace aids us to triumph over this weakness. So, finishing up 405, but the consequences for nature, weakened and inclined to evil, persist in man and summon him to spiritual battle. Now, spiritual battle not by his own power, not by his own forces, by his consent, but included in that consent is the grace of God influencing him in seeking to remedy, cure, heal ignorance, malice, concupiscence, and what death has opened to us. There's a wonderful saying in St. Thomas where he asks if the grace of Christ differs from the grace of Adam. And he says both Christ and Adam's grace have as a necessary consequence arriving at the vision of God. Remember, that's the means by which we attain this vision. Man is called to an end by nature. He cannot attain by nature, but only by grace, and that because of the exalted character of the end. But Christ's grace includes a second effect. It's the same grace. It's both supernatural elevation 
to communion with God, and that is healing. Jesus' grace is not only sanctifying, but also healing. It heals us of our ignorance. It heals us of our malice. It heals us of our concupiscence, and it prepares us for the final end, which is our resurrection of the dead. Whereas Adam's grace led to an easy virtue, we now live our grace in combat. Ours is difficult. But in contradistinction to the pagans before Christ's coming, this combat is not only one of struggle which seems hopeless. It is painful for us to be healed. You know how when you cut your hand open, I creamed my thumb about a month and a half ago, and it didn't hurt at the time I did it, but then it became very swollen and hurt a lot, and then somebody had to prick it with a paper clip to let out the nail, to let out all the blood, and that hurt much, much more than the original injury did because it was bringing forth healing. When the infection is attacked, often the wound hurts more because the infection resists being killed than the wound did when it was originally made. The same thing is true in us as we are beginning to experience the transforming power of grace. Only now, because our virtue is a virtue we experience in suffering, this is our share in the cross of Christ. Grace aids and supports us in this healing. And more than that, grace shows us a more powerful effect because it's much more powerful effect of God's love that someone whose fallen nature should be raised to be above nature than someone who's already in nature should be there without any fall whatsoever. Now, this leads us to a famous problem in the history of theology with respect to grace. There are two famous opinions about grace that are both heretical. One is that man by nature is completely and totally depraved and that all grace does is cover over his depravity. This tended to be the opinion of Luther. Luther taught that man in the state of grace was like dung covered by snow. In other words, that grace didn't deeply arrive completely at the transformation of our faculties. The other error is to maintain that grace does nothing for us really, except enable us to do what we could do by our own power easier. This error was taught in the early centuries of the church by a British monk named Pelagius. You can see how these errors are opposites from each other. Pelagius teaches that Adam's sin isn't really real. It's just an unfortunate thing, and we don't really inherit it. It's just kind of bad example. It doesn't arrive deeply or directly at us. So by our own power, we could arrive at heaven. It's just that God makes this easier for us. Luther maintains that no matter what we do, we're depraved. So all of our actions are sins unless God merely chooses not to regard them that way. The Catechism expresses this in 406. The Church's teaching on the transmission of original sin was articulated more precisely in the 5th century, especially under the impulse of St. Augustine's reflections against Pelagianism, and in the 16th century in opposition to the Protestant Reformation. 
Pelagius held that man could, by the natural power of free will, and without the necessary help of God's grace, lead a morally good life. He thus reduced the influence of Adam's fault to bad example. The first Protestant reformers, on the other hand, taught that original sin has radically perverted man and destroyed his freedom. They identified the sin inherited by each man with the tendency to evil, concupiscence. Notice I haven't said that sin. I've said that's a tendency to sin. Now the Protestants identified that with sin, which would be insurmountable. Nobody could ever escape concupiscence, ever. So everybody was a sinner. I mean, Mary's a sinner. John the Baptist is a sinner. Peter's a sinner. Paul's a sinner. There are no saints, really, because everybody's equally depraved, and all God does is overlook their depravity. The church pronouncing on the data of revelation on original sin, especially at the Second Council of Orange in 529, which was against Pelagius, and at the Council of Trent in 1546, which was against Martin Luther. So, in the original sin, we lose grace and we lose the preternatural gifts. In Christ's redemption, we're reconstituted in grace and we get back, but we don't get back the preternatural gifts. Now, one further point, just for the sake of completion. Man still in this world, no matter how well he is constituted, has not yet persevered because he has not yet arrived at the ultimate end. Grace is the means by which he arrives at the ultimate end. And therefore, to have a full, complete picture of man, it's necessary to consider what human life would be like in heaven. In heaven, glory, glorified man. In the intellect, we have the vision of God. This is what we were created for. This is the natural completion of man. It is not inhuman. It's not characteristic of this life, but it's still part of the full completion of man. Our will, because we've sought God throughout our life, like Mary Magdalene seeking for her Lord, like the person in the book of the Song of Songs who seeks through all the places looking for the Lord by love, wounded, wounded by love, we sought the Lord. Now that's completed in vision, so love is perfected. This vision, this experience overflows into our body so that when we are reconstituted with our body, we experience emotional joy as well as willed joy. And then finally, this experience is experienced in the fullness of the perfection of the resurrection of the dead, where the bodies actually shine with the glory of God's vision. This glorified man is man perfected. And in fact, the Pope gave a series of Wednesday audience discourses on marriage, John Paul II, and he divides them according to these three states about grace. The first is called the original unity of man and woman. That's state A, original justice and holiness. The second is blessed are the pure of heart. That's state B, original sin and redemption. And the third is marriage and celibacy, because especially celibacy cannot be understood without considering what man is like in heaven, where they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, why on earth did God allow us to fall into the original sin? I used to have a sister friend who said, if he just kept us from sinning, everything would have been great. 
because God wished to give us a further grace. In Genesis 3.15, we have God saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring. You shall strike at his heel. He shall strike at your head. God permitted the sin to bring forth an even greater gift, which is himself in person taking flesh. This is an unimaginable thing. It's the final purpose, the final grace, the final image, the final means by which we arrive at heaven. St. Thomas calls it the miraculum miraculorum, the miracle of miracles. In 412 the Catechism says this, But why did God not prevent the first man from sinning? St. Leo the Great responds, Christ's inexpressible grace gave us blessings better than those the demon's envy had taken away. And St. Thomas wrote, There is nothing to prevent human natures being raised up to something greater even after sin. What is that that's greater? It's the fact that now human nature is united to God in person in Jesus Christ. What greater revelation, what greater manifestation of grace could we have? God permits evil, says St. Thomas, in order to draw forth some greater good. Thus, St. Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, and the exultat at the Easter Vigil sings, O happy fault, O felix culpa, O necessary sin of Adam, which gained for us so great a Redeemer. Now, these states of nature are essential to understanding the next section. Because man who has fallen down is going to be progressively prepared for Christ who will send the Holy Spirit of love back into our souls. That progressive preparation is a remedy for the two principal wounds brought on human nature by disobedience. And since disobedience occurs as a moral act in the intellect and will, ignorance and malice are those two great wounds. God progressively prepares the human race through the two great hinges of salvation. He first remedies for ignorance in man by instruction. And that instruction is divinely revealed and it's called the law. The law is comprised of both the Torah and the new law of Christ. And then malice is resolved when Jesus sends us back grace through the presence of the Holy Spirit, send to the church on Pentecost, which teaches us finally how to live the law. In the next three classes then, we are going to examine first of all the nature of law, and then the old law, the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, which is our preparation to receive Christ, the new covenant which Christ gives, and then finally, the essence of that new covenant, which is the nature, necessity, and effects of sanctifying grace. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.